Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Both sides are continuing the fight as long as they can. And I don't see in the next year, barring some black swan event, that really changing. It's been a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. At the rate the war is going, the anniversary could be the first of many. It's Friday, February 24th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, could vertical farming save American agriculture from the Western mega drought? And there's a growing number of dogs and cats that are found after being lost or going stray. Some of them are older and struggle to find adoptive homes. We'll hear from one family who bucked the trend and meet their new friend, Bendu. But first... The bells of St. Michael's Monastery in Kyiv last night, marking one year since the Russian invasion. In Ukraine, this is a day of vigils, remembering those lost in the war. On Telegram today, President Zelensky wrote that the past year was one of pain, sorrow, faith, and unity. He also wrote, this will be the year of our victory. But the human toll is mounting. Accurate assessments are hard to come by, but reports suggest more than 200,000 Russian and Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or wounded so far. Dara Masico is a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and a former Pentagon analyst on Russian military capabilities. She stopped in for a conversation about where the war stands one year in, and she told Peter O'Dowd it's been especially costly for Russia's military. So there are parts of the Russian military that are significantly damaged. Um, The Russian army, the Russian airborne forces, a lot of their special forces sustained early and severe losses. Other parts of the military are still largely intact, like the Russian Air Force, Russian Navy, and their nuclear triad. Um, What they sustained in the beginning, in the opening weeks and months, it is very difficult for them to overcome both quantitatively and qualitatively. And you've written that early on, of course, we all follow this very closely, the Russians made some big mistakes in this war. On the other hand, there are ways in which they've adapted, and they've learned from those mistakes. So what do you think the most important adjustments of the Russian military have been? Well, the mistakes that they made early on just stacked up, and they were cumulative, and they really undercut a lot of advantages that they had over the Ukrainian military in the beginning of the conflict. It took them multiple months to make some decisions and try to consolidate their positions. And I want to make the distinction here um, from things that they are learning versus battlefield adaptations. I think they are showing that they're able to adapt They're able to consolidate, try to shift to a defensive position in many areas, and realize that their maximalist ambitions that they had are no longer really possible. That's a a battlefield adaptation. It's operational. But that is distinct from organizational learning. And I would argue that there's things that are safe for them to talk about and things that are not necessarily safe for them to talk about. And you see this in the criminalization of talking about certain issues like combat deaths, forecasts about what went wrong in the war, forecasts on where it might be going, all of those things Mm -hmm. will now get you into legal trouble inside Russia. 
And when you say maximalist goals, has that changed? I mean, do the Russians still want to conquer all of Ukraine? I think that President Putin's goals have not really shifted. I think there is a realization that he no longer has the military to do this. And so, you know, I, of course, I can't read his mind. But, you know, I think when he, he looks out to the future, he sees one where there is a pro-Russian government in Ukraine and the issue of a Western-leaning Ukraine or a Ukraine in NATO or receiving guarantees from the West is off the table. That's his goal. I think now he understands that this is a goal that is going to be delayed or deferred for multiple years, and he has to accept a longer timeline in achieving it. That's his ambition, but the capacity to achieve it on the ground now is severely disrupted. Well, one of his biggest advantages has always been manpower. But as you suggest, the casualties really on both sides of this war have been staggering. So if the Russians are hurting, how badly are the Ukrainians hurting? Well, it's hard to get accurate assessments of either side, frankly. I understand that the Russians are experiencing over 100,000 casualties, and that's a combination of wounded and killed. I've seen estimates that it's similar for the Ukrainian side, too. So this is a very costly war. The issue about the Russians, though, is the losses that they took early on, it's not only just a numbers situation, it's the qualitative parts of those specialists that are gone. They have shown in this current offensive, they've replenished personnel through mobilization, but they don't have the same skill set, and they can't Mm. perform in the same way. They're inexperienced conscripts, in other words, that are fighting this war for Russia. Right, right. Yeah. I want to play a piece of tape from uh, General Mark Milley. This is the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and this is how he described the state of the war last week. Russia has lost. They've lost strategically, operationally, and tactically. Would you go that far? I mean, Russia still controls about 20% of Ukrainian territory, and although it may be damaged and depleted, it shows no real signs of retreat. I agree with some parts of this. I think strategically, yes, they have failed in their objectives to demilitarize Ukraine. Operationally, I do think that they have been stymied. They're not really able to make large gains again from where they are right now. Tactically, it's a little bit more mixed. The Russians are putting pressure on certain Ukrainian positions like in Bakhmut, a few other areas along the front line that the pressure is really mounting. And I think we're probably going to see some changes in the weeks ahead in terms of you know, positions on the front line. But in general, yes, I think the force, if it has not culminated, it is showing us that it has very little energy left on the current path. I'm speaking with Dara Masico, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and an expert on the Russian military. And Dara, let's uh, step outside of the front lines for a moment and talk about the way that this conflict over the past year has really shaken up the global order. We saw, of course, uh, President Biden was in Kiev this week, just as the United States was warning China against sending weapons to Russia. What about that? How would China's support for Russia in this war, change the contours of the conflict? Well, I I think China has been supporting Russia in other ways that allow it to continue with what it's doing, uh, whether that's economically or whether it's providing non-lethal assistance pretty much under the radar. Um, A major shift in policy uh, would be really problematic. I'm not sure what Secretary of State Blinken had in mind when he was talking about um, you know, their concerns that China may provide some type of weapons to Russia. That could be anything from drones to help the Russians fix their 
problems with reconnaissance. It could be some type of munitions because there's a lot of commonality there in some of the kit that the, the PRC has in the military. But it, it's certainly something to watch. I'm just not sure what the contours of it will be here as of yet. On the other hand, uh, the West is still in lockstep with Ukraine. We see that Europe and the U.S. are sending tanks. Ukraine is even asking for fighter jets now and more advanced weapons. So, so which military, in your opinion, then has the advantage going into the spring fighting season? I think qualitatively, the Ukrainian military has the advantage, um, not only from the weapons that they're receiving from the West, but all of the intelligence support that they're receiving also. I don't think the Russians have an answer to that, and I think that puts the Ukrainians ahead. They're also very innovative organically in local units all the way up to the top of their command chain. So I think in terms of innovation, the equipment coming in, the qualitative edge definitely goes to the Ukrainians. The issue on the Russian side is that they do have more manpower that they could bring to this. They did a partial mobilization of 300,000. If they wanted to, which would be a political risk, they could do that again and again. There are hundreds of tanks probably left um, in strategic reserve. Russia has been drawing down on them this whole time, but there's still some there that are pretty serviceable. So there is some untapped potential. You'd written in Foreign Affairs that uh, Russia would be unable to turn Ukraine into a puppet state as long as Ukraine maintained its resolve and the West continued its support. Do you see any signs that the Ukrainian resolve has cracked at all over the past year, or is it uh, stronger than ever? No, I, I think it's very strong against the Russians. There is a sense that you know people want life to return to normal. But I think that's very distinct from how they feel about the end of the war with Russia. I mean, this is very existential to the Ukrainian population. And, you know, when Russia started firing missiles at Ukrainian critical infrastructure, like their power stations and some of their water treatment, it didn't crack their resolve. It didn't force them into the streets to protest against the Zelensky government or whatever Russian strategy thought they would do. It just hardened their resolve. Um, against Russia. And I, I don't see a way forward, really, between the bilateral relationship between these two countries. It's completely poisoned as a result mm. of what Russia has done. So that said, and it is too early probably to forecast an end to this war, but when you look at the next year of fighting, what, if anything, would bring the Russians and the Ukrainians to the negotiation table? Well, um, you know, I just, I don't see the Zelensky government ever sitting down and negotiating territorial concessions to the Russians. At one point last fall, it looked to me that the Russians were settling into a defensive position in the east where they were digging trenches. They were not really pressing forward. They were trying to fill gaps in their forces and and regenerate over time. They've now changed that and they're pressing forward and it's not going well. But again, I think both sides are continuing the fight as long as they can And I don't see in the next year, barring some black swan event, that really changing. In other words, Ukraine won't stop until it gets Crimea back. Uh, That sounds like a tall order. Well, I think they, they, I mean, you understand why they're saying it. I mean, they, you know, the Russian position in Crimea is a threat to all of Ukraine. But there are so many different challenges that they have to fight through first before they can really even get to Crimea. So this, unfortunately, is this is a complicated picture. It's not impossible for the Ukrainians to retake their territory. 
Dara Masico is a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and an expert on the Russian military. Dara, thank you so much for uh, giving us your insights here uh, a year after this war began in Ukraine. Thank you for having me. Yesterday, we asked a resident of Kharkiv, one of the worst hit cities in Ukraine, what the anniversary means to her and whether she thinks there's any chance Ukrainians would accept the negotiated end to the war that lets Russia keep some of the land they've annexed, Crimea or Donetsk, for example. Maria Avdayeva told Robin Young it's a non-starter for families like hers who have suffered so much. Everyone has already sacrificed so much. Apartments that was destroyed, family members killed, friends that were killed on the front lines uh, and sacrificed people already did. So the general mood is we have to go and fight until all the territories will be liberated because the price we have already paid is so high that we just cannot stop. You can find that full conversation and all our coverage of Ukraine at hereandnow.org. Coming up, Peter wraps up our series on water in the West with a visit to an urban farm in San Francisco that grows lettuce and other greens indoors. We'll ask whether the young but growing field of vertical farming could be part of the solution to the region's mega drought. That's after the break. Farmers here in Arizona and in Southern California like to brag that this region produces almost all of the country's winter greens. In our story yesterday, we met farmer Jack Vesey in a field of romaine near the U.S.-Mexico border. So if you're in New York City or in Washington, D.C. having a Caesar salad in February, there's a, about a 95% chance that it's come from... Uh, uh, this area grown with Colorado River water. Not only are you eating lettuce from this area, but you there is Colorado River water, for lack of a better way to describe it, in your body nourishing you. <laughs> yeah, no, very true, very true. But as we've been hearing all week, the river is in peril. Too many people are drawing from it, and the drought is so bad that if states like California and Arizona don't make drastic cuts to their water use, the river could stop flowing past the dam at Lake Mead altogether. It would be a disaster for farms in Yuma and nearby Imperial County, California. And so, as our series on the river wraps up today, we're asking a provocative question. What if we needed far less water to grow our food? And what if we did it indoors? Well, that is exactly what Nate Story is doing 650 miles northwest of here in San Francisco. To go inside the Plenty Farm warehouse, you have to dress up head to toe in a protective suit and walk through a shallow bath of disinfectant. Dunk your feet in there and we'll go on in here. Yeah, style in the farm is not a thing. This is not a place for style, so. (laughs) Story is a scientist and co-founder of this agricultural startup. He looks downright dashing in a hairnet and green latex gloves. The ventilation system is buzzing and somewhere a giant robotic arm is sending a tower of greens through a harvesting machine. What's growing here? We got lettuce. Lettuce is mostly what you can see right now. This is a vertical farm. Bok choy, lettuce, and baby kale grow inside this building on towers that rise five meters off the floor. But each seedling starts its life in a crowded little nursery that is ablaze with lights. Kind of looks like Christmas tree lights, doesn't it? 
There is no sunlight on this farm, but it's cozy warm in here. The LEDs glow green and red, purple and blue. They shine on trays of little baby plants. In here, there's no stress. So we bring the plant in and we just say like, how do we just get the best results, period? Like, what are the ideal conditions? And we just keep that growth rate at maximum the whole way through. No stress, just come in here and get as fat as you can. Plant vacation, yeah. right? Their lives are very short, but they're very good. After about a week, the seedlings are big enough to be moved onto the growing towers, where they will be bathed in artificial light pretty much around the clock. Vertical farms like this one are part of a young but growing industry. They've popped up in cities like Denver and New York. By one estimate, there are more than 2,000 of them in the United States. And later this spring, Plenty will open a new farm in Compton, California, that will produce 4.5 million pounds of leafy greens a year. One reason the industry is taking off? Water. This farm recycles nearly every drop of it. The reality is like in the field, 99% of the water that the plant takes up is transpired, meaning they take it up to their leaves and then it just evaporates, right? In here, the plants are still doing that, but we capture all of that water. Mm. Story says by doing so, vertical farming uses 90% less water than outdoor agriculture. And someday, he thinks it'll be 99% less. Today, you know, this industry is all of like four or five years old. It's a technology industry, which means it changes very, very quickly. So if we're recirculating all of the water in the air, as well as all of the water in the system, uh, we're down to like a fraction of 1%. Put on your philosopher's hat for a second. How big of a deal would it be if you were to reach that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just means that every unit of water can produce 100 times what it did, right? I mean, that, that's a big deal. I think it's huge. Murat Kasira runs a center for indoor agriculture at the University of Arizona, which includes greenhouses and more recently, vertical farms. The role that controlled environment agriculture will play is going to be significant. That's because the water crisis is growing more urgent. Soon after we met at the university's greenhouse in Tucson, six of the seven states that rely on the Colorado River gave the federal government a plan to reduce their water use. But the state that draws the most from the river, California, didn't sign it. As tense negotiations drag on, it's clear that major cuts will be coming to the region's most important water supply. We are challenged with a dynamic climate out there. It's not stable anymore. Which, Kasira says, will put pressure on traditional agriculture to change. Inside his greenhouse, mature plants are dripping with luscious cherry tomatoes. An intern named Matt Castaneda is clipping a variety called indigo drops from the vine. Just got to single out the ones that have the nice purple-red color. Do you ever sneak a bite in every once in a while? Hey, once in a while I do. This morning I was a bit hungry and I grabbed one and munched it. I can't resist. Kasira hands me a plump piece of fruit. There you go. It's another cherry tomato variety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's delicious. That's beautiful. The tomato is delicious, but Kasira is realistic about the challenges of growing indoors at a mass scale. Greenhouse technology is more mature than vertical farms, but both are expensive. That machine you hear is pumping nutrient-rich water into the irrigation system. The ventilation fans of this greenhouse are keeping the air fresh. And in a vertical farm, the lights are on all day long. How would you describe the power usage of a vertical it's farm? It's significantly high compared to uh, growing outdoors. That's the challenge that 
the, the whole research and the, the technology de development is trying to address. Is that to like bring the that, holy grail? Yeah, that's the bottleneck of the crop production, electrical energy needed for lighting or for air conditioning. It's also a labor issue. Well, there's a learning curve for sure. The workforce needed. Right now we are in huge demand for skilled workforce. The automation needed, the labor is a big issue now. Traditional field agriculture is perhaps the oldest industry that there is. Sure. I mean, we have been cultivating crops outdoors for as long as humans have been around, right? And Indeed. yet this Indeed. sort of thing is so profoundly new. Uh -huh. Could it ever replace all the production that is happening in the Imperial Valley of California and not far from here in mm -hmm. Yuma, Arizona? No, the answer is no. But I think the contribution the collaboration of the controlled environment agriculture with field agriculture will be needed. It will As be a piece it, of it, the puzzle. It will be a piece of the puzzle, but it will not replace field agriculture. Back in San Francisco, it's pretty obvious that vertical farming is nothing like growing in a field. Inside the warehouse with Nate's story, I watch crews power washing a five-meter tower that has just been plucked clean by the harvesting machine. Yeah, you know, in the field you've got a tractor, it's like going through, you might be harvesting multiple rows at once. Here we have a robot, it harvests a single row at a time. And then we see the robot in action. Well, look, a robot just brought another tower down to get harvested. Yeah, that's right. So these big robots, they, they pick the towers, right? So they just lay it down, run it through the harvester, and then they'll pick it back up again once it's been cleaned and transplanted. Wow, here it comes. Story says the journey from seed to harvest can be up to twice as fast as growing lettuce outdoors. The greens that are harvested here will be packaged and sold in nearby grocery stores at a price comparable to organics. Someday soon they'll be selling strawberries and tomatoes. But I still want to understand why Story is growing food this way. So before I leave the farm, we step away from the robots to go somewhere a little more quiet. This is what he told me. I mean, this is like a reckoning for the United States. Right, because we've relied on the Colorado River for a very long time. But other parts of the world have, have already gone through this structural change. They've gone through this environmental shift. Right? There are places in the world where des des desertification has already taken place, and their water resources are gone or depleted. For folks who have lost their water resources, this is something to look at. But you also can't feed the world with bok choy, arugula, and strawberries, right? That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. What about wheat, soybeans, corn, things that really drive the agriculture industry in a big way? Yeah, I mean, um, today it doesn't make sense. Like today I can't grow wheat and compete with the field. The field is very good at growing wheat. It's like one of our first crops, right? I'm competing with a very mature technology. <laughs> but you'll try to go there someday? I mean, you think that's realistic to have a wheat field think, indoors? Listen, I think we have to go there. Uh, like, and this is kind of like getting into crazy territory and there's gonna be a lot of people that say that guy's nuts. Um, and by today's standards, I am nuts, right? That isn't, that's a crazy claim to make. But this is a technology cost curve, right? Like people thought the ability to like have a, a supercomputer in your pocket would have been a crazy idea even 25 years ago. You're holding an iPhone. I'm, I'm holding an iPhone in my hand, right? And so like the, the beauty of technology cost curves is that they surprise you. So then let me ask you, what is the risk or the consequence of not trying to do something as crazy as growing wheat indoors? I think we have to. It has to be said, like I view the technology we're developing as like an amazing opportunity to give people fresh, clean, healthy, amazing tasting food. I also view it as a life raft for our species. 
Nate Story of the vertical farm company Plenty speaking to Peter O'Dowd. Scroll back in the podcast feed to hear the rest of Peter's reporting out west. Wednesday's episode takes you to the abandoned Salton Riviera in Southern California, where the desiccated Salton Sea is poisoning the air. And yesterday, we heard from farmers along the California-Arizona border about what Colorado River restrictions could mean for the future of agriculture. Worth listening to if you've ever enjoyed a green vegetable in this country and want to continue eating them. Hereandnow.org for those stories, or just listen to the previous two episodes of this podcast. We've got one more story for you today about a furry friend named Bendu, and what it's like to find your puppy soulmate when they're running out of dog years. Stick around. It's always sweet when a pet gets adopted, but it can be hard for older animals to find a home, especially if they have health issues. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sieg introduces us to an old dog who has a new family, despite a grave diagnosis. Bendu is brown and white, with short fur and a floppy mouth. He loves eating wet food along with his kibble and really loves his crinkly toy, shaped like a fried egg. Grand Junction couple Sophia Sinkovich and Kyle Chu watch their new roommate with a mix of delight and pride. Each little thing is so precious and so cute. And I was telling Kyle that we feel like new parents. You know, we have all these photos of him on our phone and we're telling our family about him. He's got this droopy, droopy (laughs) face and, you know, a lot of saliva um, in his mouth. And he's just looking at me. um, But you can you can almost make out a smile. It seems hard to believe that this goofy boy, named after a Star Wars character, has only 6 to 12 months to live. After Bendu was found running loose late last year, a veterinarian estimated he was 10 years old and diagnosed him with cancer. Sophia's the one who saw an Instagram post trying to find Bendu a hospice foster home. I looked at his face and that was it. Like, I was lost. An instant heart connection, she says. She remembers looking over at Kyle. I said, babe, I gotta ask you something. (laughs) At first, Kyle was nervous. He had never had a dog, but he agreed on a Bendu meet and greet. And one of the first things he did was he just sat right on my lap. He butt claimed, right? Like he just (laughs) kind of decided, oh, these are my people. And he leaned into us and was just so sweet. And Kyle's fears? They just all went out the window. It's what animal rescue advocates always hope for. But according to Nan McNeese, president of Grand Rivers Humane Society, which helped rescue Bendu. There's a national all the way down to local crisis. Speaking from a rainy adoption event, she says as inflation has risen, adoptions have fallen. And shelters and rescues are often too full to accept new animals. It's awful because that's not how we're wired. We're wired to help. And helping senior pets can be the most challenging. The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals estimates that a senior dog has only a 25% chance of getting adopted. But now Bendu has a safe space to call his own. And he looks comfortable in it, slurping up water in the kitchen and snuggling with his new family on the couch. For them, this all has extra meaning. Kyle's parents died of cancer. 
So did Sophia's dad. Having Bendu will help me, I think, heal some of that loss of my father and just what I couldn't process then. I feel like I'll be able to continue to process with Bendu. Instead of hardening their hearts against more loss. I think this is helping us cherish every single moment, um, you know, with each other, but also, also with Bendu. I don't have trouble worrying about the future when I'm with him. Yeah, go get it! Especially when he's chasing after a tennis ball in the backyard, like nothing is wrong. This time together is a gift to all three of them, no matter how many days Bendu has left. For Here and Now, I'm Stina Sieg. Give your pets a hug today, everybody. I know you want to see some photos of Bendu. We've got them at hereandnow.org where you can also find photos from that vertical farm Peter visited. And while you're there, check out our interview with saxophonist Braxton Cook, who's out with a new album today. It's got jazz, neo-soul, and R&B. But don't go thinking it's too smooth. Uh, if you listen, blast it on some speakers, you know there is a bit of some edge. I um, mean, I think that's what gives it that kind of, like, fourth dimension almost, you know what I mean? You can really hit you. You can find that whole conversation at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Gabrielle Healy, Peter O'Dowd, and Chico Theori. Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, Eileen Belinsky, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green, Max Liebman, and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it's my birthday today. And if you're looking for something to get me, just subscribe to Here and Now anytime and get a friend to do the same. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll be back Monday. Monday.